0: Fun Ideas Productions presents The Fun Ideas Podcast I'm having so much more fun now
1: I have let them show me how To live their
0: Hi, this is mark arnold and welcome to fun ideas podcast number 228 the fun ideas podcast is brought to you in part by freaky magazine i contribute material to every issue so give it a try hey kids have you read freaky the magazine of weird humor for freaks like you Freaky Magazine
2: is a way-out collection of weirdo comics, kooky gags, photo funnies, social satire, and surreal collage. 52 pages of insanity
0: in the tradition of magazines of yore like Cracked, Plop, and Zap. Special offer for Fun Ideas listeners. Get
2: a free sample copy in the mail. Made of smelly newsprint and smudgy ink the old-fashioned way. Just message your mailing address to the slow poisoner at gmail.com that's the slow poisoner at
0: gmail.com while supplies last
1: you remember them from your childhood half for the friendly ghost richie rich hot stuff baby Huey, sad sack and little audrey you read them in comic books and saw them on television and in the movies. Now you can read about how they and other Harvey comic characters were created in two great books from Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions: *The Best of Harveyville Fun Times* and *The Harvey Comic Companion*. Both are available from Amazon. The Companion is also available from Fair Manor Media. They are available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today! Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself.
0: Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by PopOptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order, and you'll receive a free bonus gift. I plan to go on Charles F. Roseney's Magical History Tour in 2024, and here is Charles to talk about it.
1: Hey, hey, this is Charles Roseney, sometime guest here on the Fun Ideas podcast. Have you ever thought of taking a Beatles tour to Liverpool? Well, I host and organize the Magical History Tour every summer www.LiverpoolTours.com But I'm here to tell you about two other things. My books! Yes, Mark isn't the only author. I've recently published the book of Top Ten Beatles Lists where 64 celebrities gave their top ten favorite Beatles-themed lists with reasons why and a and photos and all kind of fun stuff. Please check it out: www. 10 beatleslists It's the follow-up to www. bookoftop 10 horrorlists.com where a hundred celebrities gave their favorite horror lists. Enjoy the upcoming show, and thank you for listening to my ad.
0: In Fun Ideas Productions news, progress is being made on publishing my upcoming Turtles and Mad books. Hopefully they will be out by the end of 2023 or the beginning of 2024. My latest books that are published include my books on Pac-Man, the stars of Walt Disney Productions, the revised second edition of my Monkeys book with Michael A. Ventrella called Long Title, and the TTV Scrapbook. You can buy them all on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or directly from Bear Manor Media. If you'd like a signed book, contact me at funideas.mark at gmail.com or purchase your book through my listings on eBay. I'm still working on my TV cartoons at Time Forgot book, as well as articles about the Harvey implosion and Aunt Archie's Mr. Weatherby. On today's show, we have part one of our three-part Beatles author series with an author who has written The Beatles, Fab But True, Remarkable Stories Revealed. Here he is, Doug Wolfberg. Hi, this is Mark Arnold with another episode of Fun Ideas Podcast, and today I have Doug Wolfberg, and he's written a great book called Bad But True, which is about the Beatles, and uh, it has various stories from what I've seen uh, that some I've heard of, some I have not, and they go into great detail. Uh, The one I happen to see just glimpsing through the book is when uh, Beatles got kicked out for uh, lighting a condom on their wall in Hamburg, so (laughs) I I guess uh, welcome to the show and you can tell us a little bit more about that and how you got your uh, stories together.
2: Yeah thanks Mark it's really good to be with you I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to talk about the book Fab But True Remarkable Beatles Stories Revealed. So that story that you mentioned is yeah it's really a classic and uh, you know I think it, it you know people knew a little bit about that story but as you said, there's a lot of detail about that in, in my book. Uh, that particular story, when you say they got kicked out, not 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 only did they get kicked out of the place where they lit the condom on fire, but they got kicked out of the whole damn country. So, right, right. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they got deported from Germany. And in fact, uh, Pete Best and Paul McCartney spent a night in a German jail uh, under suspicion of arson, which was kind of funny because, you know, the story is that they tacked this condom to the wall and uh they've both been very clear by the way over the years that it wasn't used i don't Mm -hmm. think it would have lit very well if it was but now (laughs) we're really going down a rabbit hole yes (laughs) and they tacked it to a cinder block wall you know no chance of burning this place down the real reason they got turned in was that the owner of the club uh, where they were playing was was pissed off because they were leaving to go to a better club And uh, the Beatles weren't very savvy businessmen, and they were actually breaching a contract they had to play uh, for this club owner, and they wanted to go off to a better club on the Reaper district in Hamburg. And uh, so we turned them in, told the police they were arsonists, they put them in jail for the night, they stuck them both on airplanes, on an airplane the next day, first time Pete and Paul had ever flown, Mm. and uh, they shipped them back to Liverpool and uh the band sort of reassembled there john and uh george sort of had had come back uh under other circumstances but uh yeah so they got kicked out of the whole country for lighting a condom on fire
0: right uh well wasn't george kicked out on that trip unless it was a different one for being underage
2: it was, was that, that trip? trip okay and yeah. then
0: i guess john had to come back because he had no more band <laughs> yeah that
2: That's right. And, uh, you know, George had actually gotten kicked out first. Uh, and it was interesting because, you know, they, John had sort of said, well, we'll find another guitar. We, you know, we can soldier on without him." And then, you know, within a few weeks, they all ended up coming back for different, you know, nefarious reasons in some cases. And, you know, George at first felt kind of abandoned and then they all reassembled in, in Liverpool and George felt that he sort of had his mates back, but, uh, it was interesting because they were really scrappy at that point, you know, trying to find gigs. Um, you know, that was their first residency in, in in Hamburg. And, you know, those gigs were lifelines. And yeah. to sort of have that rug yanked out from under them, uh, yeah. the first few chapters of the book really tell stories like that, where they make a step forward and seem to have two or three steps back. Um, yeah. the, the number of times that history could have lost the Beatles, you know, that they could have just folded uh, mm-hmm. with, with these setbacks uh, and didn't. You know, that's really one of the, the themes in the early chapters of the book. Hmm. Now, a book like
0: this, if I was to undertake it, um, I would have difficulty deciding what stories to put in and what stories not to put in. So yeah. did you have any sort of criteria or did you just say, hey, this one's neat. It has a condom in it. I'll put that or or whatever. I mean, it's like. Uh, what what did you what made the cut? What didn't make the cut? What was your determining factor?
2: Condom story was a no brainer because it allows me to go on podcasts and say, "Let me tell you the story about the condom," right? But uh, okay. no, I think what really w- was what made the cut or didn't was that I'm a lifelong Beetle fan, right? You know, I'm 57 years old. I've been you know Beetle maniac since I was 10. So, you know, so okay. for it, it was really fun. for me just the stories that I thought were interesting stories that I knew a little bit about and really wanted to sink my teeth into as a researcher. And I thought being a Beetle maniac, if I wanted to know more about these stories, uh, these were the ones that I found interesting as a, as a diehard Beatles fan that chances are, these were ones that others would find interesting too. So that was really just the criteria. It was very uh, personal in that sense. And I, I kind of feel sort of representative of Beatle fans everywhere Uh, You know, we have that in common, you know, so I felt if it was interesting to me, it would be interesting to others as well.
0: And how many stories are in the book?
2: Sixteen.
0: Sixteen. And uh, is it covering just their lifetime as a group or does it have any that go on to the through the solo years or anything like that?
2: It does. Yeah, it actually goes uh, through the through the solo years. And uh, there's stories about the uh, formal dissolution of the Beatles. Uh, There's a story about the fact that the final documents dissolving the Beatles legal partnership were signed at Disney World. So there's a chapter (laughs) that talks about how that all came to pass um, and what led up to that. So the cool thing is a lot of folks know, oh, yeah, I heard that that, you know, the documents were signed at Disney World. Well, how did that come to happen? Right. You know, what were the series of events that led to, you know, the Beatles had a meeting. John blew it off. He decided to go to vacation in Florida. A courier tracked him down, handed him all the documents while he happened to be at a hotel at Disney World. You know, so I it just goes through, really. People know the basics, but how did it come to be? And then what were sort of the postscripts uh, to each one of these stories? So it's not just the snapshot, but it's how we got there. And what the consequences were in each of these chapters. So, in the post-Beatle years, there's that story. There's the story about how John and Paul uh, recorded one last time in a studio uh, in the 1970s in LA, um, and how that, you know, impromptu session came about. What happened to the recordings? And you know that story is told. Uh, there's a tragic story about Mal Evans. It, um, and you know, the fate that befell him. Uh, so some of these stories definitely uh, occurred after the Beatles had broken up. So we we go into um, into the 90s really with uh, litigation between Apple Core, the Beatles company, and Apple Computer and tell tell a pretty interesting story about how the roles of those two companies got reversed over the years, you know, Apple, beatles was bigger than apple computer and then you know the balance of power really shifted to the point where the apple core trademark is now owned by apple computer so the beatles use that term under license to apple computer so talk about a role reversal um so yeah some of those stories do do go into the to the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s with that story
0: now on each story that you delved into uh did you do any interviews or did you just use other sources? And the second part of the question is how did you know if your source was a credible source or <laughs> just just some sort of rumor?
2: Yeah. Well, you know what they say about the 60s. If you can remember you weren't there, right? <laughs> so uh I did some of both. I, I did some interviews. Um, notably I interviewed um Rod Davis, who was one of the original quarry men who was present at the Wilton Church Fate playing uh, with the Men the day John and Paul met. Uh, that story is told in my book in the context of the song Eleanor Rigby. Um, so I, I had the opportunity to talk with Rod Davis, which was really super cool. Um, I had talked with um, a member of the best family with uh, Pete's brother, Rory. Um, I got the opportunity to talk to Jeff Emmerich, Emmerich the producer before he passed away. Uh, obviously it would have been a little hard to talk to him afterwards, but <laughs> super nice guy. And, um, I've met Ringo, didn't get a chance to, you know, get into stories with him in detail. And, um, yeah, so I, I did some interviews and, you know, it's interesting because the recollection that folks have, you know, and, and these interviews were all great, very accurate. But the people, the principals involved, don't always have the the best recollection of the facts. You know, you can sort of verify sources from other, you know, public records, for example. Um, the the story about Mal Evans, for example, there's been lots of things that circulated on the internet. None of it made a lot of sense to me, so I I got public records, you know, from L.A. Police, uh, the L.A. LAPD, and and really dug into some of those records. So combination uh primary sources and uh archival material public records were available uh so really a combination of things uh sure as hell wasn't a wikipedia job you know there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of uh, deep digging
0: right um was there anything that in any story that you put in there but you put in there with like a grain of salt you thought this seems a little far-fetched but you know, there's a little corroboration here and there. So I'll put it in here, but keep in mind, it might just be hearsay. Did you put anything like that in the book?
2: Yeah, I, I, that's a really good question, uh, Mark. I think some of the stories, you know, the whole goal of the book was to try to separate some of the hard ingrained myths, you know, from, from true facts. Right. Um, So yeah, I think some of that crept in, but I, I'm a lawyer by training, uh, so I have that pain in the ass skepticism built in. <laughs> um, so I really tried to, you know, look critically at every um, every piece of a story that was so taken as fact over the years and go, oh, wait a second, you know, did it really happen that way? I mean, I'll just give you one more example to come back to Mal Evans. Mm-hmm. Everything I read on the Internet said You know, poor Mal pointed an air rifle at the police and they didn't know the difference. Mm -hmm. Well, according to the to the police reports, which I obtained as part of my research, there were not one but two firearms uh, chambered with real ammunition, um, (laughs) one of which was in Mal's hands. Now, you know, look, that's not to disparage Mal, uh, you know, and certainly that was, I think, a a crisis of perhaps mental health. And it's a very sad story. Uh, and Mao certainly did not deserve the ending that befell him when he was shot by the L.A. police. By the way, great book coming out by Kenneth Womack uh, based on Mal's own uh, written work and his archives that I'm super excited for. But but that's just one example of things that become, you know, fact over the decades that I sort of tried to look at and go, well, wait a second. You know, let, let's dig dig a little deeper here and not just repeat everything that's circulating around the Internet. Right.
0: So you did your homework, in other words, which right. is good, which is good. So I guess that kind of answers the question I'm kind of formulating is like, if you're like a hardcore Beatle maniac uh, like yourself, and I'm like your same age. And when you're younger, I was also a Beatles fan since uh, I was 10. So 1977 is when life changed for me. Uh, but uh, is there anything in there for someone who's, I've read it all. I've read Lewis's book. I've read all the diaries. I've read uh, I, Me, Mine. I read, you know, <laughs> you know, this book about Ringo. I read this book about John. I've read the, you know, the good ones, the bad ones, whatever. Uh, is there anything left that you kind of uncovered or went into greater detail than any of the previous books at this point?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I would say yes, because I don't think I would have written the book if I wouldn't have found a niche that I didn't think was being filled uh, by the other books, because I've read all that stuff, too, you know, over the decades. (laughs) And, you know, one thing I didn't want to do was just recycle, you know, everything that that was out there. Um, So that was an existential question. You know, I had to, you know, do I really need to write this book or has it been written? So, you know, I looked around and, you know, there's books that scratch the surface of some of these stories, because I think some of them, Beatle fans generally know. Uh, but when I really started to dig into the research, I found these colorful characters and these incredible stories that once I dug deeper, I, you know, I would come up here at, you know, four in the morning because I'd, I'd wake up and I'd be so like, I'm so excited. I got to read more about this, you know. And keep digging on the research and then just I couldn't wait to write these stories because the the more I dug, the more fascinating some of these people and some of these stories uh, became, you know, one story that I think folks know a lot about is that, you know, Brian Epstein was not a, uh, you know, he had great strengths, the Beatles manager, he had great strengths in promoting the Beatles, he got him, you know, helped him become recording artists got TV gigs for him got exposure. You know they, they wouldn't have become what they were probably without without brian um but there were certain aspects of their business that he really was not very good at and one was merchandising and it's pretty well known that brian sort of uh, squandered through mismanagement uh hundreds of millions you know huge amounts of money uh, in merchandising but what i didn't know was that um, brian who of course uh, in the 1960s you know homosexuality was illegal Uh, in Great Britain. So um, he would have been, you know, charged with crimes had had it been known that he was uh, that he was a gay man. He sort of became friends with a, a solicitor, an attorney in London who had once represented Liberace in a very famous defamation case, the one where Liberace famously said after he won this money, I'm crying all the way to the bank. Right. It was that case. And this lawyer named David Jacobs was sort of uh, Brian Epstein's uh, surreptitious tour guide when he moved from Liverpool to London, you know, took him to the underground clubs and things where he could sort of be himself and, you know, uh, you know, not have to um, hide his identity and that sort of thing. So neither Brian Epstein nor David Jacobs knew much about music merchandising. Brian Epstein gave a power of attorney essentially complete control of merchandising to to David Jacobs. He said, look, this is just a sideline. I've got concerts to deal with, records to deal with, movies to deal with. People want merchandising rights. You handle that. So David Jacobs signed an agreement with a group of businessmen who formed a company called Seal Tab, which is Beatles backwards. (laughs) And, you know, they slapped this company together and sort of jokingly David Jacobs says, Well, how do you? He, he gave him a contract, left the percentages blank, and he said, Well, you tell me how you want to fill it in. And the businessman, this guy named Nikki Burns, sort of jokingly says, How about 90, 10, 90 for us and 10 for you? David Jacobs goes, Okay, right. Not knowing anything <laughs> about this. And you know, that's the genesis of how, you know, this, this fortune, probably more than they made with records and concerts was squandered um, through just this this bad business deal that, that Brian Epstein sort of just gave away. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that that kind of thing in these characters, mm-hmm. uh, and this attorney, David Jacobs, ended up committing suicide under very questionable circumstances, That's following it. a court case in which uh, two criminal defendants were accused of literally crucifying a person, literally, not not related to the Beatles, but related to this attorney, he gets involved in this case and shortly after is found hanging in his garage. So, you know, again, just interesting people, interesting postscripts to these stories of these characters that intersected with the Beatles life. So that's just one example of, you know, these people that I discovered that I just thought were fascinating.
0: Now just kind of backing up a little bit and just uh, talk about your history. So, uh, you said you became a beatle maniac or a beatle fan i'll say at the age 10 so what's your exposure to the beatles and what was the catalyst that made you say this is the group for me or whatever
2: yeah i got a hold of a record uh it was the the blue double album right hmm. and uh this would have been 76 i guess and uh i just started and I put it on my little turntable my little record player at home and you know, no idea. I can't tell you why I just played it. And I just thought this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. You know, this is amazing. So when I was old enough to get a paper route, you know, all my money went to, to Beatle albums. Um, and, you know, it it was just, you know, that it just spoke to me. I mean, that music, just whatever it was, you know, So I kind of went backwards. I started with the later stuff because it was the blue album, you know, the compilation that I, that I first got and then kind of went backwards. Right. So it was an interesting, you know, this was the seventies. So all the material had already been out recorded, you know, the whole body of work was done. And, uh, and I just kind of discovered it almost in reverse sequence. Then I started late period, went early every era, you know, every song, it just, you know, it was a journey of discovery that, every album and every track i got my hands on back then was better than the than the one before it and uh i became a musician and spent (laughs) a lot of hours standing in front of the uh, mirror you know trying to (laughs) hold my tennis racket the way john lennon would hold a guitar you know
0: (laughs) now uh were you aware of the beatles prior to the blue album or was that just like a flunky thing i just said this looks interesting these hairy guys. Let's look at this.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a hard time believing when I was a kid that the picture on the blue album and the picture on the red album were the same people, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah, no, I, I can't. I don't really have recall a consciousness of the Beatles in in the culture before getting my hands on that album. But then, you know, I pestered my parents to buy me every magazine and every book and everything back then that I could get my hands on. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, from that age, just started listening to everything, reading everything that I could. Mm -hmm. And then once uh, I guess I was 12 and I got a guitar, you know, then it was trying to learn every Beatles song that there was.
0: Mm -hmm. Were you also collecting the current releases or were you just strictly a Beatles person?
2: Uh, the you mean the the solo stuff?
0: Yeah, the solo stuff that was coming out in the seventies, eighties, beyond. Were you getting that, or because there's some Beatles fans that are? I'm strictly the Beatles. That solo stuff stinks, which I think is a a silly notion. But yeah, some
2: people are that way. So I'm just curious. That's really good question. I no, I'm primarily a Beatles guy, but I did. You know, I had Ringo Starr's albums when I was a kid and then as i got a little bit older and started you know making my own money from odd jobs um you know you can't it's off camera but right above me in the front of the camera is uh my original copy of double fantasy that i bought what two weeks before john lennon was killed mm-hmm. uh so yeah i was trying to keep up with the stuff especially when i had my, you know a few dollars of my own money in my pocket uh and i could buy mon- you know albums with my own money mm-hmm. um yeah and uh so yeah a a little bit of a little bit of the the solo stuff i i was into that you know as well but i'm primarily a beatles guy you know as a group yeah
0: (laughs) i was just curious because uh, some people say never uh on my own story i became a beatles fan first but and i was kind of aware of them earlier um certainly knew of yellow submarine and stuff like that um when i was really young uh but uh I remember when I became a fan, my mom bought me with a little luck on a 45 Hmm. and uh, just as a gift. And I go, why did you buy me this? (laughs) Because it said wings on it. I was like, I didn't know who wings was. I wasn't listening to the radio much. And she goes, well, look who wrote it, you know? And I go, Oh, McCartney. Oh, okay. And then I, I put it on the record player and I go, Oh, I know this song. You know, it's like, I just, it didn't click that it was the same guy. That also sang in the Beatles, you know. Until I heard it, you know, and then I go, I've heard this song on the radio. I just really wasn't paying attention, and from that point forward, I was like in tune with like all music, not just Beatles. Is like, you know, ooh, you know, so yeah, you get where you come from, you know, it's like keep up with everything. But.
2: Yeah, it's pretty cool to hear your story about how that awareness. Uh, came to you, it's you know very similar to to mine you know when you start to put the pieces together i remember hearing george Harrison solo songs like mm-hmm. i that, that was in the Beatles you know you, you know and it's uh yeah it's pretty cool when that awareness comes to you when you get to that age it's really neat and I,
0: I started discovering the older solo albums as well as the older beatles albums and you know apparently i was around radios you know uh growing up so you know, occasionally there'd be I'd play a song and it'd be like "Give Me Love" by George Harrison. I go, "Oh, I've heard this song before," yeah. and you know, but I never really thought about it being who did it or anything. And um, I did remember as a little kid hearing Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey, but I thought it was a Beatles song, you know, <laughs> and I didn't think about it one way or the other. And then years later, oh, that was the song that because I go, "How come it's not on any of these?" Beatles albums. I'm I'm trying to find it here. So that was like confusion I had to go through right, during during my learning curve on on Beatles and everything like that. Sure. Um, One quick question about that uh, last uh, item you were talking about with uh, all the merchandising and everything. Um, Do you think, and there's no right or wrong, but do you think that the reason why the merchandising wasn't considered that important uh, it had something to do with, other than maybe like Disney or something, that people didn't merchandise things in general that much compared to now. It seems like now they over-merchandise things. They put out like everything. Um, and the Beatles thing might have been the first time that somebody looked and go, hey, we can make some money off of these people in other ways than just the records.
2: Yeah, that's a really great point. In fact, it's it's good of you to point that out because it it is fair to Brian Epstein, uh, and David Jacobs, I suppose, to say that this wasn't really a piece of the music business at that yeah. time, right? I mean, the Beatles blazed so many trails; uh, they accidentally blazed that one because of of the sums that they ended up giving away. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, it really wasn't until. You know, I mean, there was some Elvis merchandising, a lot of which happened after his death. But, um, yeah. you know, Kiss was probably in the 70s. <laughs> and I, I say that in my book, you know, the first band, I think, probably to really fully exploit the, the, the uh, opportunities in merchandising. Yeah. So, you know, you make a very good point. And I think in fairness to Brian Epstein and to, to others involved in that, yeah. you know, there really wasn't a business blueprint uh, to yeah. make decisions at that time. <laughs> um so no you you bring up a very good point and i good. and i do mention that in the book okay. as well okay be good because
0: <laughs> so. it seems like hindsight's 2020 20. you could say oh he's a lousy businessman but you know well he was kind of venturing into new territory i mean i guess you know we mentioned elvis you know i don't know if colonel tom parker really uh was that much of a trailblazer prior to brian epstein <laughs> you know <laughs> or You know, any management for Frank Sinatra or Bing Crosby or however far back you want to go, uh, you're kind of just on your own. And I guess in the old days, the only way to merchandise, which all three of them did, was movies, you know, and they did a little bit with the Beatles. But, you know, that was certainly more with those older stars, you know. so
2: Yeah. You know, but another point, though, is I I talk about this in the book, in that chapter, when the first uh, check for the the merchandising rights was presented to Brian Epstein. He looked at the amount and uh, he said, "Okay, well, you know." And he said this. He was talking to Nikki Byrne, who was the uh, the licensee uh, who had gotten the rights for the merchandising. And he said, "Okay, well, thanks. You know, uh, I'll I'll get your cut out of this, and I'll get get you the check." And he said, "No, Brian, you don't understand. That's your cut. So that was the ten percent." And then it was then that Brian realized the enormity of what he had given away. So even in his time, even though this was merchandising was kind of a new thing, um, the realization of what he had given away hit him pretty quickly. He tried then to renegotiate the uh, agreement. But by the time he did, John had already made his we're bigger than Jesus remark. And, uh, you know, merchandising income had started to trail off, you know, in 1966. So. Uh yeah, so there was a uh, sort of a sickening realization on Brian's <laughs> part of what he had done, even in his lifetime.
0: Um, now you know you have sixteen stories. Uh, and how many pages is the book?
2: Two hundred and low two hundreds. Okay. Uh, okay. Two hundred eight. Two hundred eight.
0: De- decent amount. And <laughs> photos and images and things like that too. Or yeah, a little bit. Tons.
2: Okay. And- tons of there's over 80 uh illustrations in the book okay um some you know folks have seen some I took specifically for the book oh, cool. some I obtained uh you know rights and licensing for um yeah so pretty richly Illustrated it's not just the four pages in the middle of the book you know that have the pictures it's throughout right <laughs> I I just like seeing those pictures in context of the stories so they' right you know, throughout the book. Now, was there
0: any stories that you're researching that you were considering for the book? And because you couldn't find enough information on it or it kind of went to a dead end, you just pulled it or?
2: Yeah, actually, there was one that I found too much for. And, <laughs> you know, and so one story, I think, for a sequel, if there is one, uh, would be the... Um, the uh, like how Michael Jackson came to acquire uh, for a time, the Beatles publishing and, you know, Paul McCartney has told versions of that story uh, over the years. And uh, but, you know, like all the stories that I tell, you know, there's a long sequence that gets to that point. You know, how did the Beatles publishing rights even come to hit the market? Right. Right. Why were they originally given up, you know, uh, by Dick James, and and you know how do we get to that point where Michael Jackson can buy or invest in that catalog? So that was one story um that I, d- I ended up not putting in the book, but I've already got a list of of, of ideas and and topics for uh, for a sequel if uh, if it comes to that.
0: That story actually seems like it could actually be enough for a book on itself. You know, since you are talking about going back to the Dick James era and everything like that. I was just, when you said Michael Jackson, I was just thinking of the little era where, you know, Paul likes to say, he says, I'm going to buy your hits, you know? Yeah, <laughs> you, know? Right, right, right. you know, whether that's exactly true or not, you know, that's the story. And then he ends up doing it, you know, which would be kind of a short story with it. But in the context of the whole Beatles thing, just how, you know, it'd be interesting to see a book, just the whole coverage of how, they always were not quite owning everything that they were working on, which is a little bit sad, you know?
2: Yeah, that's right. And in fact, uh, it's a very perceptive point you're making. And I talk about this in the context of one of the chapters about how the Beatles rejected the first song that they were sort of instructed to record for their first single, uh, which was How Do You Do It? And, you know, I so I tell the story about how the Beatles, who had not had any hits yet, right, weren't yet recording artists, kind of, you know, the undersized Beatles made this outsized stand to to really stand up for their own music and record Love Me Do, which became their first single. But in the context of that story, I talk about how the Beatles really helped shift power in the music business from producers and publishers uh, who sort of went and shopped material, gave it to the recording artists. This is what you'll record. This is what we're going to release and tilted it more toward the singer songwriters who were self-contained, who could uh, write their own music, perform it, uh, tour, you know, and and uh, do live appearances, really could do all of that. And in in the book. I I also talk about, and I, and I, I can't take credit for this. One of the sources was of course, Mark, Mark Lewinson's research. And he tells the story brilliantly um, about how the conventional wisdom is that George Martin heard something magical in, in these scruffy Beatles from, from Liverpool and took a chance and signed them to, you know, Parlophone. And, you know, in reality, the Beatles were sort of foisted on George Martin, uh, by publishers who who had really were the original ones to see the potential in the Lennon and McCartney songwriting, and they wanted EMI to sign the Beatles so these songs that these songwriters, Lennon and McCartney, were writing uh, could have an outlet and that they could capitalize on the publishing. Uh, so it was actually an EMI subsidiary uh, called Ardmore and Beachwood that uh, was a publishing company that put the pressure on EMI to sign the Beatles. So behind the scenes, it was really a publishing coup, uh, that got the Beatles signed, uh, to, uh, to EMI. And, uh, interestingly, the company that was owned by EMI that Ardmore and Beachwood uh, publishing company ended up not even getting the publishing rights. Dick James, as we already talked about, got those rights. But, uh, so, you know, it was the it was the hidden hand of the publishers uh, that really were responsible uh, for launching, you know, getting the Beatles on their way as recording artists. Uh, but in, in that chapter, I, I do talk about how, you know, that that hit became a hit. How do you do it? Uh, was presented to the Beatles. They were sort of ordered to record it. <laughs> uh, they rejected it, which was just a huge stand and, uh, went on their way to be, you know, recording, writing and recording their own material, which ultimately was released. So it's pretty cool stuff.
0: Now, um, was I was going to ask, uh, uh, it just would like. Uh, let's see.
2: Um, no, no worries. Uh... I can, uh, while you're gathering your thoughts, yeah, I can. Yeah, let's I, do that.
0: Because <laughs> there's like, I get a lot of thoughts and then suddenly it in my head. So go ahead.
2: No, nah, no worries. You know, one of, one of my favorite stories from the book um, mm-hmm. is in the 1966 World Tour, which of course be, was their last, right? Mm-hmm. And there's the infamous, you know, trip to the Philippines and, you know, finally Candlestick Park and they're, you know, sloshing around in the back of a van and they're like, we're done, you know. But during the the, uh, portion of that tour, which took them to Japan for the first and only time Mm -hmm. as a band, uh, they sort of famously play at the Budokan, right? Right. Which Budokan Arena, which was a uh, site for martial arts contests and some Japanese music had been played there. Mm -hmm. But it was the first time a concert for Western music had been booked there. And a promoter uh, named Tats Nagashima, Uh, who had had experience booking Western acts for GI clubs in Germany and that sort of thing after the war, ends up striking an agreement with Brian Epstein to bring the Beatles to Japan. So this guy named Tats Nagashima is the promoter, books the Beatles, needs a venue big enough, right, for the world's biggest act. So it's the rainy season in Japan. He needs an indoor arena. The, The only place he comes up with is the Budokan. So he signs a contract, Beatles get booked into the Budokan. Subsequently, in the conservative corners of Japanese society, all these protests start erupting about the Beatles, you know, desecrating this sacred shrine. And notably, there's a protest where the president of Japan, who was no conservative, but to keep the peace with conservatives, uh, led a protest against the Beatles appearance at the Budokan. There were four, or uh, three other notable Japanese citizens who joined with the Japanese president in protesting the Beatles' appearance. One of whom was the promoter Tats Nagashima, who booked them into the Budokan <laughs> in the first place. Wow. So that's really a fascinating story. But here's the part that makes it a chapter in the book, and that is because of these protests going around in Tokyo, the Beatles are sort of confined. Uh, to their suite at the Tokyo Hilton for the three days that they're in town. And to pass the time as, you know, inmates in this hotel, uh, Tatsunagashima brings them a canvas and paints. And in the three days they're there, the Beatles turn this confinement. They're such creative forces, right? That they play their concerts and people who were uh, there are quoted as saying that they couldn't. The Beatles couldn't wait to get back to the hotel to work on this painting. They were just <laughs> obsessed. So over the three days that they're uh, confined to the suite, uh, over these protests, not of their own making, right? They they work together collaboratively on this painting. They stick a table lamp in the middle of the canvas, and each beetle takes a corner and paints an abstract work. Uh, and it's the only painting really the only work of art other than music Mm -hmm. that the beatles collaborate on i guess you could say films and you you know what i'm getting at here yeah yeah. and uh so they they complete this painting and actually uh it's pretty cool the publisher uh used that painting as the inside uh Uh, of of the front and back covers of of the book it's a beautiful painting it's it's quite abstract and it's called images of a woman even though there's no images of a woman, a parent. And where does this painting reside
0: now? Who owns it? Who has it?
2: So, yeah. The, yeah well, first <laughs> off, let me, There's oh, I'm sorry. There's the white circle where the lamp was right. <laughs> uh, while they were painting. And there's pictures in the book that show the lamp sitting there and then painting. So this uh, painting ended up in the hands of the president of the Japanese fan club of the Beatles. Ah, And uh, uh, there's some mixed recollections, but he either bought it in an auction or it was given to him right around that time in the summer of 66. It essentially um, it changes hands once more uh, in Japan, uh, an owner of a theater chain and it sits in his house essentially in a frame under his bed for about 50 years. (laughs) And, uh, it was ultimately auctioned off. And, um, the, the owner of it is, is anonymous, but, uh, it was auctioned off. Um, I want to say it was in the nineties, um, maybe in the, even the early two thousands, uh, it was less than $200,000. And I think if this piece came to market today, Mm. i'm guessing it would be a seven figure uh, auction probably
0: <laughs> i was just wondering if one of the beatles managed to take it but apparently not uh <laughs> no they didn't and you know yeah. it's
2: interesting because john was a trained artist of course he had gone to art college for a time uh and the others are really no slouches with the paintbrushes either and it's right it's interesting once you know whose contribution is on which corner of the canvas To sort of see a little bit of their personality in that painting. So um, just a fascinating story about how they turned these, you know, circumstances of confinement into a work of art.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for saving me because I had a brain fart, but (laughs) I remembered now what I was going to ask earlier. Um, So earlier in the conversation, you said you met Ringo. Was it uh, like a face to face type meeting or what was the circumstances with
2: that? It was, yeah. Drake, okay. Drape your arm around him. Smile for the camera. Yeah, it cool. was in. Uh, it was in New York City in 2015. Uh, he had released a book called Photograph, which oh, yeah. was a compilation of his pictures uh, that he had taken when he was in the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And um, I, through uh, Genesis Publications over in uh, in the UK, when Ringo came to New York, they they invited me to uh, come to a sort of a pre-event um before the launch of his book in in new york and uh do a meet and greet and just get to spend a little time with him and um it was pretty out of body because you know (laughs) well you know your whole life you know you're you're a Beatle fan and one of them is standing there and you know he he just he i he's so good at putting people at ease and just making you relaxed and then you know you can just talk to them, you know, which is just the coolest thing. Uh, so it was uh it was a great experience. And that picture, it's actually uh, behind me <laughs> on the wall. My son is in the picture as well. Oh, okay. um, and it's every screensaver of every device that I own. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> and g- quick postscript, if I can, just a couple of weeks sure, ago sure. in New York city, I got to uh, meet Pete best. Okay. So I now have, uh, I can say I've met both drummers for oh. the Beatles and I even got to play with Pete Best. Uh, wow. so yeah, so that, that was a, a pretty full circle moment as well.
0: Okay. Uh, have you met any other Beatles or Beatles associates over the
2: years? So I got to, to talk with Paul McCartney, uh, at a sound check, um, okay. and cool. you know, not pose for a picture or anything like that. Um, and I've, I've met, um, yeah, I, I think I mentioned I met Jeff Emmerich, which was pretty cool. I met uh, Tony Bromwell um, when I was at Abbey Road a couple of years ago. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've gotten to meet meet a few of these uh, folks and or interview them by Zoom, Billy J. Kramer, uh, folks like that. So uh, it's really, really kind of a thrill. And like I said, just within the last couple of weeks, so recent that those pictures aren't even in the book, uh, you know, spending some time with Pete Best and uh so yeah just it's it's really a neat thing you know to be a fan and then to get to you know actually meet some of these folks Mm -hmm.
0: and concerts over the years
2: yeah uh probably a dozen times or more for paul and uh maybe half a dozen for ringo okay sadly never george and of course never never john
0: yeah, oh. unfortunately yeah um, yeah in my case uh, of course I've seen uh, George I uh, excuse me Paul and Ringo many times but uh, almost went uh, to Japan at the spur of the moment to see George and oh. then I, I chickened out at the last moment like uh. uh, you know <laughs> but oh well and mm. then the, the closest to John is, is I've seen Julian Lynn and I've seen Yoko Ono so far <laughs> oh okay well that's, that's pretty a- cool. <laughs> so, um, let's see what else? Uh, so any other plans for any future books besides maybe a sequel to this or anything that's not Beatles that you're considering?
2: Yeah, I well, interestingly, I, I've, I've given some thought to some other other topics to, uh, to write about that some are non Beatles related. Uh, but I think in terms of the Beatles. Um, one other topic that I've seen some coverage on again, I think the key is if you're going to write something, contribute something, you know, to the body of knowledge, just don't recycle stories. And, you know, that, that was very important to me in writing fab, but true. Um, one of the other things that I, I've seen some writing on, but not a, not a comprehensive treatment is really the, it fascinates me to think about the interpersonal relationships of each beetle individually with every which with each other beetle right and there's there's been tantalizing breadcrumbs of a trail about that you know the the interpersonal dynamics uh almost the psychology of how they related to each other because we as fans see them as the Beatles, right but how did they see each other you know paul has said over the years that he tended to see george because he knew him as a younger kid right when you're 15 and somebody's 14 or 13, you see them differently. Right. right. And you tend to carry those uh, stereotypes through. He's just a kid. Right. And you can see in the later years how Paul sometimes treated George a little dismissively and, you know, the famous scene and let it be, you know, the blow up about how he was playing a part. Um, I think some of that carries through to when they were kids, right? Okay. They all looked up to John. So there's that psychodynamic, um, you know, Ringo is sort of the non-threatening one, you know, who each person kind of relates to as a common denominator, I think. So that, that subject of really diving in through interviews and, you know, that would all be archival stuff, of course, right. um, how they related to each other as people is a topic that, that I think is, is fascinating that, uh, yeah. And I guess one other and I'm giving away all my damn book ideas, but, <laughs> uh, but being Not a right. lawyer, I, 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 I've always been a little interested, too, in some of the litigation um, surrounding the Beatles. I know there's been some writing about that, but yeah. um, but I think there's still some some room for uh, some more scholarship and research around around that piece. So those are those are a few things that are kicking around.
0: Well, I'm always fascinated uh, when somebody does, and ma- maybe it's a lawyer thing, because Bruce Spicer does the same thing, and he's a lawyer too. You know, I'm sure you've seen his oversized books on, you know, he, he untangled the mess of VJ records and <laughs> Swan records and all those little minor labels with, you know, finding out the truth that certain albums weren't released when they th- thought they were and things like that, and why the uh, Beatles weren't uh, awarded gold records for some of those and you know where did the money go and all, all those little holes you have to kind of fall right and everything yeah so um yeah so it, it's fascinating that people like you do that i mean i do that too i write books too but my background's not law <laughs> but um and uh, but you know i i and I'll ask if you had a situation like this too, I, I, what I like best in any of my books is if I find some information that nobody's ever uncovered before, and you know that it's accurate and true because it's like in a newspaper or some verifiable document or something like that. Did you have any sort of aha moments or many on this book?
2: I did. Uh, in, in fact, uh, The the gentleman who wrote the foreword for the book is uh, Tom Frangione, who is on the Beatles channel Mm -hmm. on Sirius XM. And, uh, you know, when I was working on the manuscript, Tom asked me a question and I I thought, well, that's a really good question. And his question was, when um, this mob connected music industry guy named Morris Levy uh, sued John Lennon for copyright infringement over pieces of the song come together, which borrowed from a Chuck Berry tune. This guy, Morris Levy, at that point owned the copyrights to Chuck Berry's publishing. So uh, so John got dragged into this lawsuit. Uh, Tom asked me when I was working on the book, he said, how come Paul didn't get dragged into that litigation? (laughs) Because all the songs, you know, as you know, were credited to Lennon and McCartney. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's a damn good question. So. I dug and dug and dug and dug and I found an obscure reference, which, as you just said, came from a very credible source Mm -hmm. that Lee Eastman, Um, who was Paul's, uh, became Paul's father-in-law, it was Linda Linda uh, McCartney's uh, father, Mm -hmm. had had sort of obtained on behalf of his client, Paul McCartney, um, a a warrant or sort of an affidavit, as we call it, Mm -hmm. from John Lennon. Basically saying, "Hey, I acknowledge sole authorship. This was my decision. I did this right." And he, and he excuse me, kind of indem- got indemnification for Paul from John uh, before John got dragged across the carpet uh, by Morris Levy. So um, that was a piece that um, just didn't had never really seemed to have been answered. Yeah. Uh, how how Paul escaped that whole mess that entangled John <laughs> for the better part of the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was able to sort of dig down until I was able to find that answer. So uh, that it's a great question. And that, that's, uh, I think, the best example of something like that, that I just had not seen any credible accounts of um, that I was able to dig right. down and get, get an answer on.
0: Now, this may be a question for your person, you know, upcoming book idea of, you know, how they related to each other. Do you think as time went on, (laughs) excuse me, do you think as time went on that as they got older, post Beatles, they got more, especially post like Alan Klein lawsuits and everything like that, uh, they got more protective of each other that, you know, that would be a reason why Lennon would have, not wanted mccartney dragged into it because let me deal with this one you can deal with that other issue or whatever that you're dealing with you know or something like that do you think that's a possibility
2: i do i think that's a great question first of all and and secondly you know it's it's a very interesting i think it's an astute observation because as much as they had these differences um you know even up to the 90s when they did anthology there's a story that's told about there when they came together to record free as a bird, how someone in the studio, I don't think it was anybody of note, you know, nobody famous, just a tech or somebody said, well, I think we should do it Paul's way. Right. When they were having this discussion and Paul, you know, he said that to George, Paul kind of said, he's still a beetle, you know, like you don't get to talk to him like that. Right. So, you know, I think that they did close ranks um, you know, there were only four people that shared that experience. And I think at the end of the day, um, as much as at times they wanted each other's throats, <laughs> uh, I still, I still think they, they would have done anything they could to, to protect, yeah. uh, the others. That's a great question.
0: Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I just kind of remember Lennon's quote later on. I, I don't know which interview it is. It's one of his later ones. You know, it's like we called each other every name under the sun, you know, and uh, dragged each other. We came to blows and, you know, whatever he said, you know, it's like, you know, but uh, basically that was his way of saying, you know, hey, we made it through it all and we ultimately love and respect each other. So, you know, it's kind of a refreshing way to. And and I think they all kind of said that. I mean, you know, in their own way, like I think George said once, you know, there's a lot of ego in that band. You know, which, he did say you that. Know, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, well, you, you kind of have to have that if you want to have, you know, not to knock Pete Best, but Pete Best's personality was not the personality that the other four really had. You know, it's like the kind of outgoing, let's put on a show type thing. Pete Best was kind of more quiet and reserved, and I'm just playing my drums, you know. <laughs> and so,
2: no, I think you're right. I mean, he yeah. he is a soft spoken guy, and uh, you know, I, and I think I think that's right. I mean, being in bands too, I, I on a much 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 smaller level, it, you know. Paul has said too that when you know when Ringo kicked counted in and they and kicked in, they just looked at each other and felt uh, this is it, right. Everybody who's ever played in a band, whether you're in a garage band or a bar band or a recording band or whatever it is, um, knows the feeling of just getting the right combination. And I don't think that's a knock on Pete. I think it's just sometimes people gel musically and personally, and uh, sometimes they don't. And I don't make much more of it than that as to why, you know, it ended up with with John Paul, George and Ringo yeah. uh, instead of John Paul, George and and Pete. But um, yeah, I think it's it's a great observation. And, you know, talking about the interviews that you were mentioning, I love watching those interviews. And I really <laughs> like the ones where, you know, a lot of them, they have this hard exterior. They, you know, they, they're they guarded, uh, you know, because they've been asked these questions a million times. And what's the interview trying to get at? But sometimes they let their guards down and they show, you know, but John did that particularly with Elliot Mintz, I yep. think, in some of his interviews. Um George did it a few times, but you know, that's when you really saw how they cared for each other. John would say, you know, look, some of that stuff's in the past now. And if, if it happens, if we get together, I'll enjoy it, you know, and it's, it was nice to see that you only just, you know, makes you long even more for wishing that that could have come to pass, you know?
0: Yeah. I always thought, you know, if Lennon only lived 10 more years, you know, of course he couldn't control how he, left but you know I, I i do believe sometime in the 80s they would have gotten together at least once you know probably for live aid if not something else you know you yeah. <laughs> know yeah. but it's all speculation of course but yeah you know, it just seems like and certainly by the time that they did do the anthology they would have eventually done that because it was in the planning and i know uh i don't know if you talk about this in the book but it, you know there's like sworn testimony uh, when the, on the Beatlemania case where Lennon says, yeah, we do plan to do some more recording or something together at some point, you know, he didn't say what, you know, but it's like, you read that and you go, ah, you
2: know,
0: what could have been. Yeah. I, I've i um, read
2: about that. And, and, no. and, you know, it's, it, I don't know that there's a lot of evidence that they were really going to do that, that that wasn't anything yeah. more than just testimony, you yeah. know, to, to to uh, prevail in the, in the Beatlemania case, but yeah. You, and, you know, and when they, when John and Paul did that last session in LA in 74 together during John's lost weekend, which, you know, produced very unlistenable music, <laughs> um, you know, all four Beatles were sort of in the area code, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, had relations been a little bit more thought at the time, you know, who knows, right. You know, yeah. if they would have ended up in all four together, but um Yeah. There was just so many tantalizing um, moments and, you know, you you don't really realize, I think Dr. Seuss first said, you don't realize the most significant moments of their of your life while they're happening. Right. It's not until later on, you know, the last time that the four Beatles were ever in a room together was 1969. Right. And, you know, just how many times they came close or I know <laughs> the same town but they they never again stood in the same room after 1969 which is just um it's so um yeah you know for fans yeah. it's it's so maddening to know how close you know they could have come but um
0: right. I remember um a fanzine I don't know the title uh, but it was a european one i remember that and they said, like, little beetle factoids, and this was, like, in the 80s. I said, last time the Beatles were together was in 1974. And I go, wait, wait, I want to know more about this. And then, you know, later you find out it wasn't true. I think it was that final signing that you probably talk about in depth in the book there, um, where Lennon didn't show up. And I think Ringo was on the telephone, so he wasn't really in the room. And the other two were there, which there is filmed footage of them. it's in that Scorsese, George Harrison documentary. But yeah, it's like that, that was a letdown.
2: <laughs> it really wasn't. Yeah. That, right. Know. It's clickbait or you see the headlines or whatever, but yeah. yeah right. I mean, they, w- there were times other than that meeting at the Plaza hotel in 74 when they actually came closer uh, to uh, the four of them being together than that one. Cause you're right. Ringo was in the UK. He, he was on the phone, yeah. uh, but John was just across central park, you know, or just up central park. Uh, so yeah. Um, it,
0: it's interesting. I don't know if you ever thought about it too hard or delved into it. You know, the times post breakup where three of them got together and you just think, Oh, you know, was this intentional or did it just a fluke that, the fourth person couldn't be there or whatever, you know, like the I'm the greatest sessions for Ringo or the wedding of Eric Clapton and Patty Boyd, you know, it's like different ones, you know, like that. You're like, ah, so close. Why not? You know, anyway. Right.
2: Yeah. There, there were a few, a few near misses. And I I think the one in LA was probably the one that, uh, history really, um, misses the most because um, that, you know, that could have happened in a studio. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, there were ones in New York, there were ones in LA um, and so tantalizing. uh, But, you know, when you just trace it back and you go, my gosh, you know, 1969 was the last time the four of them laid eyes on each other in the same room. And, you know, part of me goes, well, maybe that's why, you know, we look at the Beatles the way we do, compared to say the stones stones are great, bad, you know, legendary, but you know, we've had them right for, for so long that we tend to think, Oh, well, the stones are always going to be there. Right. And they might well be after a nuclear disaster. I think the only (laughs) things that will remain are cockroaches and Keith Richards, you know what I mean? Right. Right. But uh, so, yeah. And maybe that's why, you know, they left us wanting more. And
0: uh, I mean, the only, equivalent i can think of nowadays is probably probably abba you know that they did their time in the 70s and then they didn't really break up but they didn't record anymore and then they got to the point where they started doing their own solo things just like the beatles did and then they started saying yeah we're never ever going to record again and then eventually they finally did put out a new album and it's almost like why didn't that be the Beatles story but well, you know it's like uh,
2: <laughs> well I'm sure you know I'm sure you caught this in the uh when the Peter Jackson uh documentary came out the Get Back mm-hmm. uh, you know uh series on Disney Plus you know that hidden microphone uh audio right. uh, that was recorded in the mess I guess or whatever when John and uh Paul were talking and you know, John says, well, look, you know, you can go off and do your solo stuff and we can just come back and do Beatles, you know, things. We can all do our own thing and still have the Beatles. And, you know, everybody heard that and went, that was the formula that, you know, they could have done that. You know what yeah. I mean? They could have released solo albums and, yeah. and then rejoined and released a Beatles album. And, you know, just to to know that John, you know, was suggesting that, yeah. And, uh, man, I wish he would have been more uh, insistent yeah. on that point.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess to show how it would have kind of played out, you have to, like, look at Genesis or something, you know, because for a while there, they were regrouping, then did solo projects, then regrouped to do another album. And, you know, but eventually it got longer and longer times between the, the re- re- regrouping. Everybody liked doing their solo things eventually. But, right, it, yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, it's all speculation, but I still thought at some point they probably would have eventually gotten back together just out of curiosity for anything else. You know, it's like, everybody's pressuring us to get together. Maybe we should, you know, you know, and see what, see if we could still play, you know, one thing could have led to another. I would like
2: to think they would have.
0: Yeah. And at least there's been kind of some posthumous reunions, you know, they did have the anthology, you know, um, You know, without John, unfortunately, but at least like, let's say, you know, like, you know, there's just a few years earlier, there is that uh, Hall of Fame and Paul didn't show up on that one. You know, it's like, and and I, you know, when I remember when that happened, I said, really, Paul, the one time you're going to get an award for the Beatles and you're just going to be a jerk about
2: it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Anyway, but fortunately, things kind of uh, amended themselves and so. And Ringo and Paul have played together since, you know, and, you know, so, you know, it had to take George's death to kind of get them closer together, but you know, Hey, things happen. So.
2: I got to tell you real quick, um, you know, last year when Paul turned 80, um, the last show of his tour was the night before his 80th birthday. It was at uh, MetLife used to be called the Meadowlands in New Jersey. And uh, I was at the show and uh, I was with with Tom, actually Tom Frangione, and, you know, we, we, we had this real solid belief that Ringo was going to make a surprise appearance because, uh, you know, Paul had had, uh, you know, done an unannounced at Ringo's show before Ringo turned 80. We thought, oh, well, Ringo's going to return the favor. The All Stars were touring. They had that night off. They were on the East Coast, right? They were within a you know, couple hundred miles of that. We thought, man, the planets are aligning. So uh Tom got to the stadium before I did. He was in the parking lot and he texted me and he goes, he goes, hey man, he goes, I just want you to know that I just heard um, them sound check and they did, um, I want to be your man. Wow. <laughs> and... You know, that's, of course, a Ringo, you know, and I thought, oh, okay, well, that's, you know, that's there. He's coming, you know. So we we thought, oh, man, this is going to be our chance to see two Beatles together, you know, and uh, didn't happen. But uh, Bruce Springsteen came out and Mm. performed with with Paul and then uh, Bon Jovi came out and did a little guest appearance. So, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, that sucked. uh, (laughs) But, you know, when when our expectation was, you know, that. There were right. be two Beatles that night, man. We thought that was going to happen, but uh, sadly, it didn't.
0: Uh, did he end up playing I Want to Be Your Man?
2: <laughs> he did. With uh, oh. That was what Bruce sat in on.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe yeah. Ringo was supposed to show up. It's like, he can't show up. All right, Bruce, come on. <laughs> I don't know.
2: Yeah, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure it was I, – I, I hope I'm not getting my – Tom will correct me if he hears this, but – I think it was I, I Want to Be Your Man. I mean, I was at the show, but now I'm just I'm having the brain fart now. But I think that's the song that they sound checked, And I think that's the one that Bruce joined him on.
0: Well, I'm sure it was definitely something associated with Ringo to make you think that it was Ringo. Right. It would have been something off the wall, like, say, Imagine or something. You know? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Anyway, <laughs> um, let's see. Well, um, you know, I think I've asked probably all the questions I can ask without you having to... Read through the book and tell me everything that's in it. So, uh, um, I guess at this point, uh, if people have any questions, they want to reach out to you. Uh, if you have a website, where to get the book, uh, which which publisher you're using? Uh, yeah, the, so the, just, the book is
2: through yeah the book is through Schiffer Publishing, S C H I F F E R. There's a Facebook page, uh, The Beatles Fab But True. Um, I'm getting just about ready, uh, should be out later this week. We're just linking it now. There'll be, there's a website, fabbuttrue.com uh, folks can order, uh, author signed copies directly from me on that site. It's on Amazon Barnes and Noble, uh, target, you know, all the places you order books and, okay. um, yeah, so it's, it's out and about, but, uh, out okay. on Schiffer and, okay. uh, yeah, really it's appreciate not it.
0: quite out yet. What's the what's the on sale date?
2: Oh um, yeah, that's true. When you look, I, I have to remember. it. probably
0: will it. be by the time this uh gets uploaded, but you know, yeah, this will probably yeah. upload by the end of August. But uh, uh when's it going when's it on sale?
2: Official release date is yeah. August, it's on sale, but the for pre-sale, but the official release date is August 28th.
0: Okay. So this will be uh, right around that time. <laughs> yeah, <you know>,
2: October <laughs> in the UK. Okay. uh we'll be I'll, I'll be heading over there to do some events in october uh but august here in the in the u.s very cool August 28th all right
0: well um i want to thank you doug for being my special guest on the fun ideas podcast is always a blast i love talking about the Beatles because you know especially somebody who's knowledgeable and they're not just like i i think i I know that Dr. Pepper album or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well,
2: the pleasure has been mine because you, you're really up on your Beatles. And it's it's really a pleasure to, you know, talk about the Beatles with such an insightful uh, interviewer and, uh, and a collaborator to have these great conversations. You know your stuff. It, it's yep. a ton of fun, man. I appreciate it.
0: And I also want to thank Charles F. Roseney for introducing you to me <laughs> so because he always brings uh music or music related guests uh to my show and so and and we're working on a collaborative effort on the turtles of it uh that's supposed to be out sometime this year so
2: great yeah i saw he just uh was hanging with the turtles uh yep. the other day i think i saw that on his mm-hmm. social media and yeah i had the opportunity to meet meet charles a few weeks ago in uh, in new york and uh loved his book about the top 10 lists Mm -hmm. and uh yeah i i really want to add to the to your thanks and and also send out my thanks to for him putting us together so all right
0: very good okay well that wraps it up for another episode of fun ideas podcast and we'll see this is mark arnold and we'll see you next time thank you for listening and thank you doug wolfberg for being my special guest Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode number 229 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner, Goldfarb, and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.